Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the Online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am super duper excited about our two guests today. Both of these ladies were my resident in a former life, and they're both just smart as a whip, so I'm very excited. The first is Dr. Kelly Mendoza, who is a clinical pharmacist in pain management at Cahuilla Delta Healthcare District in Visalia, California. And the second is Dr. Tanya Yuritsky, who's the opioid steward pharmacist at Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, ladies. How are we today? Great. Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Very good. So who would like to start us off and tell me we're going to be talking about opioid stewardship and particularly as it applies to hospice and palliative care. What the heck is opioid stewardship? Who wants to take a crack at that first? Uh, I can kick it off. And then Kelly, if you want to supplement, feel sure. free to chime in. So um, typically, I think of stewardship as the appropriate use of pain medications. Um, I know it basically, uh, it says opioid, um, which makes you think it's just opioids. But when we're stewarding opioids, we have to also steward all of the other medications that we're using instead or trying to use to optimize our pain medication while also using opioids. So I think what I like to think about it is more like right-sizing and appropriate use and safe use of pain medications, um, all pain medications in that regard. Kelly, if you wanna add anything to that. No, I totally agree. I mean, we think of it as just the appropriate use, um, making sure we're using medication safely and um, effectively. Um, and making sure that, you know, we are consistently monitoring our patients for, um, you know, side effects and making sure that their pain is well managed um, and that they're not having any issues with these medications. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just being the opioid police, right? I think, right. yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, I think being, I don't like, I don't like to be a policeman when it comes to these things, but I think um, until it becomes more widely um, sort of accepted as a practice. I think that's kind of unfortunately where our role fits right now as well as doing other things. But uh, a lot of my job is sort of policing other prescribers as well. I think it's a lot about, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I think it's a lot about education and kind of steering people, um, helping people get to where they need to be because if they don't know what the right thing is to do, they, they can't do it. Um, so we talk a lot about that, like in the work I'm doing in stewardship of the hospital is we want to go and, and give someone a report card and say, you're not doing a good job, but how can you do that? Like, how can you say you need to do better when they don't actually know what better is? So starting right. to lay the groundwork for better and then trying to help people get there. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think a lot with a lot of the new um, laws that have come out in California, you know, mandatory use of the prescription drug monitoring program, the naloxone um, offering and things like that, you know, it's just, it's about providing education saying, hey, these are the things that we have to do now um, as part of best practice. Um, you know, you need to start integrating these in your, in your, you know, everyday practice with your patients. I think a nice analogy is when you think of antimicrobial stewardship. I mean, when I think of that, it's like not saying yes or no to antimicrobials. It's saying use them when they're appropriate in the appropriate fashion. I think people sometimes forget that not all pain is opioid responsive pain. So right. when you see people on 80 gugabillion milligrams of morphine, did anybody stop to think, is this even opioid responsive pain? So I think as Tanya was saying, some of those basic good principles of pain management is certainly the foundation for opioid stewardship or analgesic stewardship, I would say. Yeah, so, 
So, you know, opioid stewardship came out of antimicrobial stewardship. You know, that was the first stewardship sort of the pharmacist led in this world. And that's where opioid stewardship came out of. And you're right, like we had a patient prescribed, patients on 360 something or abortion equivalents for fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis. And I was like, what, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing for this patient? You know, I hardly ever see those numbers in cancer, yeah. you know? So, um, you know, we, we got her down and, and, and used adjuvants and stuff, but, um, but it is, it is, it's, it's a world that I think a lot of, um, prescribers are being opened up to, um, and, uh, needing to readjust their approach to these patients. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, and when you speak of antibiotic searchship, just a shameless plug for the pharmacist here, uh, not that we have any kind of reason to want to put a shameless plug in for pharmacists, but, um, they do require as part of antibiotic stewardship, the pharmacist is part of that team. And so an aspirational goal as an opioid steward um, is that that would be a requirement for opioid stewardship as well. While we believe we're integral and we're demonstrating that on various levels um, to aspire to have it be like in a microbial stewardship in that regard as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, pharmacists are the drug expert. I mean, who else can push aside the nuts on a cocktail napkin and draw the chemical structure of methadone beside us, am I right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, we really need to get out girls. that's all I can say nice party trick <laughs> oh yes I taught you well young Jedi so talk to me about is opioid stewardship applicable to hospice and palliative care should we care about this I absolutely think so um especially in the palliative care world right because palliative care doesn't mean the patient's dying immediately or in the next couple of weeks or even in the next couple of months and so I still think there's a, a, a use for safe and efficacious um, medication management as it relates to symptom management um, and pain. Um, and I think that, you know, the principles of offering naloxone, because a lot of these patients are on, you know, medications that increase the risk for respiratory depression and making sure that they're safely storing their medications and, you know, away from family members and pets and making sure that you know, you're getting a urine drug screen and making sure they're not taking other things that they're not supposed to be taking that could make their risk higher. So I think that there definitely is a, a need for opioid stewardship in this population. Hospice, it gets a little bit, um, you know, we tend to be more lenient in hospice, right? Especially with imminent death um, because it really is a focus on comfort. Um, but I do think that these principles in general still apply. But I, and I I tend to, I agree. And I think when we boil it down to like the definition of safe, effective and appropriate, that seems to apply kind of no matter where you go. Um, Like if I were still at end of life, I'd still want someone to make sure everything's working well for me, that it's safe and it's appropriate. And maybe the definition of safe and appropriate changes. Am I worried about long-term effects of steroids here? Am I worried about long-term effects of opioids? No, you know, but I am worried about short-term effects and making sure that that's safe and appropriate and effective. So I do think when you, you have to kind of tease out what specific elements or data points or whatever you want to call it in stewardship you're talking about. So maybe we're not so worried about 90 MME. We'll go, we can go a little further than that. Uh, but maybe we still are worried about making sure that there's a naloxone in the home for the, the young child or whatever. So just kind of thinking through the individual and how it might apply there. Yeah. So let me play devil's advocate. Is there anything about opioid stewardship that would fly in the chronic pain world, but really wouldn't be applicable in hospice or palliative care? I mean, I think uh, kind of along what I was just saying, like the, if you think about like the CDC guidelines, let's say, and how that, you know, has been broadly 
kind of applied and not meant to be uh, to a lot of different populations, namely, you know, patients with cancer uh, and facing palliative care issues. Um, and so, like, I don't think a seven days prescription is indicated for that patient. So like, no, probably not, right? And might, might you bend some of those types of rules, the 90 MME? Yes, I agree. Maybe if you go above that, you might be willing to go a little further above that and see how that goes um, and kind of weigh your risks and benefits along the way. Um, so I think some of our stewardship principles, we, we do kind of have to loosen in those regards. And then other ones, like I mentioned, like there are certain things that would make sense to me to make sure that we're giving the uh, lowest effective dose, right? Maybe not for the shortest duration required uh, because that might not become an issue, but definitely like best prescribing habits, um, you know, looking at all patient factors, making sure we're doing it safely. Kelly, if you want to expand. No, I absolutely agree. I think, um, you know, there's bits and pieces that don't apply to hospice, namely, you know, obviously we use a lot of long acting in hospice um, and palliative care, which the CDC sort of said not to. Um, you know, I, I, I agree that maybe we can like think about, you know, not 90 as a cap, but, you know, kind of obviously, you know, if you're getting up into the 90 MMA, um, you know, start thinking that we, you know, might start to need to look at these things, but you can probably switch by a little bit more because these patients tend to need higher, you know, requirements and stuff. So, um, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's definitely a gray area, obviously why we're having this podcast. Um, but, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a learning, it's a learning opportunity and it'll be a learning curve to kind of see where these principles fit in the hospice population. Mm -hmm. And I think an interesting um, point that sometimes gets brought up, we talk about is like the risk of opioid use disorder in hospice and the individual patient. Um, and I do think, you know, a lot of times we're not as concerned because they're not, have, you know, not going to have long to live, but it is an issue a lot of times because we've had it where people have voiced concern about, um, oh, well, they're going to die anyway, kind of thing. And that's, you don't really want them to die from an overdose, right? So like just trying to make sure that we're thinking about holistically how we manage opioid use disorder and the risk for that overall, um, and trying to keep patients safe in that regard too. Yes, we don't want to withhold and we want to make sure we're treating their pain and giving them adequate care, but we also do, do not want them having some type of, you know, mm -hmm. issue around opioids being prescribed that we did not anticipate or plan for. Right. Um, I think that's where, you know, you can still have the, the practice of pill counting like we do in chronic pain management, making sure that their numbers add up to sort of what they're prescribed. And if not, then that is, you know, a conversation to be had. Is it inadequately treated pain or are they diverting or, you know, using more than prescribed, um, you know, that that would you know need to be determined. Um, but I think it's still an adequate um, or an appropriate practice to, to maintain, making sure that you know, these, these medications are still being safe and used um, safely. You know, being a practitioner of a certain age, it used to be in hospice, we were like walled off from the rest of the world and we didn't have to worry about this nonsense. But boy, as reality come into hospice, we absolutely have to worry about abuse and diversion. And I think all hospice and palliative care practitioners have really upped their game in terms of trying to differentiate physical discomfort from existential angst and people using controlled substances to chemically cope with their total pain picture, which could be physical, psychological, spiritual, social, as you both very well know, because you did an awesome residency. <laughs> uh, so, and you know, when you talk about MEDE, which we'll talk about in a moment, I know my personal line in the sand is when somebody gets up to about 90, 100 milligrams a day, even though the CDC is not standing there with the hammer, I think you have to take a step back and say, 
am I doing the best job that I can do? Because people's pain generally responds by the time you get to 100 milligrams a day. So it's worth a second look to do another fresh total assessment of the patient's pain. Maybe there is that existential component that, you know, all the morphine in the world is not going to fix that. If somebody's afraid they're going to go to hell and roast in hell for the rest of eternity, morphine is not going to fix that. Even my girl methadone probably won't fix that. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I, love methadone. <laughs> yeah. I love my girl methadone. So riddle <laughs> me this. Since so much of the palliative care literature comes from the oncology population, what do the guidelines in palliative care say about the role of opioid stewardship and cancer pain management? And also a step further, cancer survivors. Yeah, great question. And so, you know, the NCCN guidelines do touch on this and they do say that we should be looking at risks and benefits. Uh, it's really important that we're, you know, if we, we are screening patients as far as risk for misuse, but I also, I feel a risk for, you know, accidental overdose and that what risk factors patients have that we can make sure we're thinking through as we're prescribing. Um, and so they, they say things like, um, like I said, doing the risk assessments, prescribing Narcan when a patient is high risk. Um, is it, they also actually recommend to refer to palliative care and palliative care experts uh, if you're dealing with a patient who you feel you need some help managing their pain or who may have some risk uh, uh, concern. So they do um, address it and they kind of talk about universal precautions really um, and using universal precautions, non-pharmacologic, uh, right? And non-opioid medications, um, using interventions when appropriate or if indicated. So they definitely go there and encourage everyone to think about safe and appropriate use of opioids um, in cancer patients. And the same thing actually in survivorship as you know, get folks off of opioids when they have no longer have an indication for uh, acute or chronic pain due to cancer and get the lowest effective dose, shortest duration possible. Kelly, you do a lot of chronic pain, so you may be able to speak to that more if you see yeah. patients who come in as survivors. Yeah, so um, we obviously do a lot of chronic pain. We have a few um, uh, malignancy patients. We um, Primarily our practice is chronic non-malignant pain, um, but I think the same principles apply, right? We need an indication to see the patient in general to be referred to us. So I need imaging to say what's going on with the patient. I need a diagnosis. Obviously, as pharmacists, diagnosing is beyond our scope of practice. So that's what I need to, you know, to have a patient referred to me. Um, and then if I feel like that, you know, if I sense that their pain is out, you know, incongruent with the imaging that I do have available, I do not hesitate to, you know, refer to another specialist, order more imaging. Um, you know, have them go to interventional and, and do that concurrently with the pharmacological treatment that I'm doing, um, you know, recommending massage, recommending acupuncture, all these types of things, and um, just making sure that we're really limiting the medications. You know, we, we realize in our practice that not all patients can get off opioids, um, you know, that some people just do need some to maintain quality of life and perform their activities of daily living, um, but it's about finding, like you said, that lowest effective dose. And, um, trying to get them down as much as possible um, within the, the, the realms of, of you know, use, utilizing the non-opioid additives. I also think sometimes we get into trouble with the other sedating medications because we have patients who are like, like you were saying, Lynn, they um, are chemically coping and we're giving them Ativan too, and we're helping with anxiety, or we're potentially trying to avoid uh, giving opioids, or we're giving a lot of gabapentin, or whatever, lots of other sedatives on board. Uh, that's where you could really get into trouble. So also, if opioids are the right drug, let's try and get some of those other guys out of there um, to keep that risk down. Right. Yeah. And I do, you know, it is about risk assessment. We do 
um, you know, before a patient comes to see us, if we're going to start opioids, we do an opioid risk tool to see about their potential for misuse. We always do a, a um, current opioid misuse measure at every visit if they're on opioids to determine their um, you know, ongoing risk for diversion and misuse. We have them do a stop bang for sleep apnea um, training before we even start opioids on them. Um, so we make sure that we get um, all of those, that information to make sure that we are being safe in our prescribing, um, you know, annual PHP-9 assess their sense, you know, depression and um, alcohol and, and other drug misuse to experts. So, um, you know, making sure that we're uh, keeping open lines of communication with their other providers. If we sense that there's issues or, or untreated other avenues, you know, depression, anxiety, if those are not treated, we all know that the pain management is not going to be effective, right? So making sure that they're, you know, referred to therapy or, or seeing someone for their depression and getting appropriate treatment management there. You know, I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple of years ago, the news blew up with the data that, oh my gosh, cancer survivors are using like 10%, 20% more opioids than the rest of the chronic pain population. You know, and I think just listening to both of you, this all kind of boils down to using common sense. So use the lowest dose possible that still helps you accomplish the therapeutic goal. I mean, I've read that women who have are breast cancer survivors can have post-mastectomy pain or even post-lymph node dissection pain the rest of their life, which may or may not be opioid responsive, but just seems like common sense is the order of the day. And there's so yeah. many social construct issues that, that influence this whole conversation, I'm sure, I think. And I yeah, think I, there's, yeah. you know, there's a big issue with, um, you know, because we've had such, you know, media, um, you know, around the opioid crisis and, you know, all these prescriptions and da, 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 you know, that a lot of providers are um, hesitant to prescribe opioids. Um, you know, they don't want to be you know, scrutinized by the DEA and all that kind of stuff. And so they're just, unfortunately, I, you know, I feel like a lot of these pain patients are getting sort of tossed to the side are. Um, saying, you know, I, I don't want to manage you anymore. And there's a lack of pain management clinicians available to, you know, adequately manage. So, you know, it goes back to education, you know, part of our job is also providing education to the primary care providers on how to, how to do pain management so that, you know, they, all our patients can be adequately treated and they can feel like they're, um, you know, not, not just being like thrown out to the wolves. Essentially. Yeah. I think you also, there you have the, pa the patients becoming very hesitant too. Um, and a lot of fear uh, around taking opioids, you know, around mm -hmm. pain management themselves. And so one of my colleagues at, at UPenn, she did a study, um, Salima Magani, on, and looked at patients with cancer and how their relationship is with their opioids and did interviews with the patients. And what she found was actually stewardship is needed, but not for the reasons we think. It's because these patients are afraid, they kind of stockpile a lot of the times, they're afraid when they're going to get another prescription, if they're going to have access to more pain medications, but also they take it um, PRN. They take everything PRN. So they take their OxyContin a lot of the times PRN, and that's extremely dangerous if they're not opioid tolerant. Mm -hmm. So having naloxone is important in a home, not just because we think it's, you know, we're giving them more than, or too much, but because actually they're not taking as much as you think they are. So when they go to take it the right way, they can get into trouble. And just thinking about it a little bit differently and educating the patients uh, regarding those fears so that we can hopefully, you know, steward the medications in that respect as well, because everybody's afraid at this point. <laughs> so let's talk now, about naloxone. I'm sorry, Kelly, were you going to say something else? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I do have quite a few patients who, when I introduce the concept of opioids, because it makes sense for, you know, what's going on with them, um, 
you know, they're, you're like, well, I don't want to become addicted. I don't want any of that. I don't want to become addicted. And so that's where you provide the education, the difference between tolerance and dependence and, um, you know, physical dependence versus addiction and how it's different. And, um, and, you know, after that, they're like, oh, okay. Like I understand that now and they're willing to try it. Um, you know, but I think that there's a lot of fears, you know, because they've seen everything in the media about everybody's addicted and, and withdrawing and things like that. And I think that's, a huge fear that has to be addressed in the in the patient population. I think what makes me crazy in hospice in particular, which is my primary practice setting, is the adult children who say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want mom to get addicted. Meanwhile, mom's saying, go get the morphine. Yes, I'm going to have the pain. <laughs> right. That be very yeah. Yeah. Well, I think people don't realize untreated pain can also lead to very bad sequelae. So there is definitely a balance there and we need to be treating pain. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this is black or white. I mean, we've got evidence-based no. medicine that there are at least 50 shades of gray, right? So mm-hmm. common sense. So let's, <laughs> talk, let's talk about naloxone. Kelly, let's start with you because I think you and I were chatting earlier that uh, there was a bill, I, I think it did pass in California, saying yeah. that all patients who got an opioid prescription had to be offered naloxone. And those of us in the hospice community turned inside out because we did not want to automatically deliver naloxone to the dying person's home for fear that somebody would, you know, throw grandma into withdrawal. What yeah. are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, so California passed um, Assembly Bill 2760, which requires that naloxone be offered uh, to any patient prescribed 90 or more milligram equivalents per day, um, or a patient who was on both an opioid plus a benzo, um, or a patient who has um, an increased risk for overdose or a history of overdose in the past. Um, so yeah, you're right. Originally, hospice was um, not carved out of this. And so the, the fear was, um, well, we don't want someone to administer naloxone for a hospice patient who seems a little bit sleepy. Um, and then send them into withdrawal and a pain crisis, right? Because that's not the point of hospice. Um, so uh, they got hospice carved out, but I think, um, I think in general, the law is a good step in the right direction, right? Um, I actually, we take it one step further. And if you're just prescribed an opioid, <laughs> we're just, we offer naloxone anyways. Um, and the pharmacies here can do it off of a state protocol as well. So you can just walk in and say, hey, I want some naloxone, they can do it. Um, and we just also started an ED program too here where patients can, people just from the community can walk in an ED and they can be given to them straight from the ED. Um, so I think in general, it's a step in the right direction. I do think that there are populations of people where it may not apply like hospice, imminently mm-hmm. dying and things like that. Um, but I think in general, it, it is a move in the right direction to have a naloxone protocol in the law. Okay. So we touched on MEDD a little bit in this conversation already, but what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it kind of strikes me that it's sort of like when people turn 65, you go to bed 64, your birthday's in the middle of the night, you wake up 65, boom, you're old. I mean, what's with that? You're on 89 MEDD and then you roll over to 90, now it all goes to heck in a handbasket. What are your thoughts on the application of the MEDD both in chronic pain and in hospice and palliative care? I agree with what you were saying before, Lynn, is it's really, it's a point to stop and check yourself and say, am I doing the right thing? What's the risk here? What's the benefit? What other medications is this person on? What are we treating? How else can we tease this out? Um, And it's not a solid stop. I think there are patients who need more than 90 MADD. There are pharmacogenomic things we don't understand. There are all kinds of metabolic things we don't necessarily know before we start a medication. Um, and so I think that patients may need more than that, but it's about assessing function and assessing risk. Um, the patient is more functional and doing better with a little bit more morphine and 
tolerating it fine and we have the conversations and we're reassessing frequently, probably okay. Um, but if we're, you know, we're going up and up and up and we're seeing patients become less functional or it's not helping them anymore, it doesn't make sense. And what else should we be doing? So I think it's not a firm cutoff, but more a chance to, to stop and think and reassess what you're doing and then go from there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, obviously 90 is used a lot in the literature and for the CDC guidelines and things, but I've seen other uh, documentation that talks about 50 OME or MEDD. And so it's like, there's not really, you know, a consensus on where is it dangerous at that point. It's dangerous at any point, right? I mean, an opioid is a dangerous medication and with every dose, you can have an issue. Um, so you know, it's about risk benefit. What other concomitant medications are they on? Are they, you know, do they have renal disease and therefore have clearance issues? Do they have liver disease and therefore metabolic issues? And, um, you know, what, what are the, you know, look at the whole person and assess their individual risk. Right. Um, and obviously, yes, as you get higher, right. Most chronic pain patients don't need to be on anything higher than, you know, I think my max is probably, 80-ish, 90-ish, but she had some surgery in there. So, you know, I'm getting her down, but I mean, I feel like most chronic non-malignant pain, I should say, is probably should not ever be that high. Um, and, you know, it's just a, a checkpoint, right? Like stop, reassess, what are we doing? What else is going on? And did I miss something? You know, are, is their pain still, are their pain complaints still, you know, co coincide with the, with the injury that they have? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I'm actually, I look at our naloxone administration data in the hospital and we have a very young patient population. Um, you know, it's like a basically tertiary quaternary referral center. So we get pretty young, pretty sick people. Um, but our naloxone administration, actually the bulk of it is given to patients who are on less than 50 MEPT. Um, so it's really just the opioid in those very sick patients that is tricky. Mm -hmm more than the amount of opioid itself. So I do agree with Kelly, like it's about the whole patient and what's going on with that patient. And I'm starting to think, I don't care that much about inpatient MEDD, I care more about all the other complexities and the fact that they're on any opioids at all. So I think the risk picture depends a lot on everything else. Riddle me this with calculating an MEDD, I'm very interested in this question. You've got a patient on OxyContin 30Q12 and OxyIR 15Q4PRN. Do you just count the long acting? Do you count all of the IR that they could potentially take in that calculation? Or do you say, well, they probably only take two or three a day? All of it. You have to I, count possibly all of it. That's how we have to do it. That's how the yeah. insurers do it. So I calculate the potential for their maximum that they can take in a day as prescribed. Mm -hmm. But then I always ask them, how are they actually taking it yeah. to get an idea? But yes, if I'm just sort of like going, you know, doing my chart review before I go in to see a patient, I say, well, their maximum OME is this. And then I check to see how many, you know, what's their pill count? Do they have extra remaining that I'm not expecting? Um, and clearly that means they're not taking all of it. So what are they actually taking? Yeah, that could be problematic though. If, for, for example, if it's a community pharmacist who's trying to follow that same rule and it's somebody with an advanced illness and they've got that OxyContin 30Q12 or even 10Q12, let's say, but then you've got the oxycodone immediately release maybe Q2 PRN and you multiply by 12 and it's like, ah, sorry, you crossed the line back in the corner yeah. with you. That's yeah. how you have to get prior authorization usually. Yeah. Um, 
that is also a huge barrier, unfortunately, yeah. for these patients. That's like probably the biggest barrier is making sure they get access yeah. to their medications because the insurance requires Q4. They won't, you know, they're going to stop you at that. They're going to stop you at quantity yeah. limits. And so, yeah, yeah it, it's definitely a huge oh. barrier. So arbitrary, it seems to me. You know, you need, really need to look at the whole situation. But talking about backing people off, how do you taper? Do you fast taper? Do you slow taper? And here for the bonus round is my question. As you know, I used to have a primary care practice. I think you both uh, staffed in that clinic. Let's say someone comes back and they have another urine where something is in it that shouldn't have been in it. And the physician says, that's it, they're cut off. Do we have a moral, legal, ethical obligation to taper them down? Do we give them another one month supply and a kiss on the forehead and a cookie and say, don't come back? How do you handle that? All right, Kelly, I'm going to give it to you because I yeah. know the tapering queen, so <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, so obviously in our practice, we do have a patient sign a controlled substances agreement with us. And so in that, it states that you will take your medications as prescribed. You will not, you will refrain from alcohol and illicit and recreational substances because uh, cannabis is legal here for recreational in California. Um, but we, because we are a federal facility, we maintain that cannabis is not a controlled substance or, you know, schedule one. So therefore they can't take it. Um, so if we have a patient come back with a dirty urine, um, we almost, we always get confirmatory, um, cause you know, things can be false positive, false negative on screens. Um, so we do get a confirmatory to make sure that they're actually taking something that's illicit. Um, and then I do have a conversation say, Hey, this is not in the urine. Like what's going on. Right. Um, I, I generally do a repeat, um, and see if it's still in their urine. And if it is, then I start the tapering process because that's part of the conduct is they're going to refrain from all these things. I give them the choice. I said, if you want to take cannabis, that's fine. I'm just going to get you off your opioids. I'll maintain, you know, treating you with the non-opioid things. Uh, but I will not be giving you your opioids anymore. Um, and in that case, I generally do a fairly consistent taper, um, probably, you know, 20 to 30% per, per visit, which I usually see them on a monthly visit um, until I get them off. If I'm tapering just to get them down because they just don't need as much, like they're post-surgery and now I'm getting them down, um, I generally go with a patient, um, a, a patient-led experience. <laughs> so I say, here are your choices. I give them a couple different cho choices for tapering and I let them kind of choose their own adventure, so to speak. Um, the only time I will rapidly taper someone down or cut them off is if I've had an adverse event. You know, they're obviously oversedated during the day or they were hospitalized for an overdose or, you know, an acute situation. And then clearly the stuff that they have at home is too much. I'll, I'll definitely taper them down, but you need to have patient buy-in, right? Especially because They've been on opioids for so long and this is what they know and they're terrified of getting off of them. You need to have buy-in for the process. If you don't have buy-in for the process, they're not going to, you know, they're going to just say, okay, I don't want to come back to you. I'll just go back to my PCP who will continue to prescribe me everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I had that lady who came in on 360 or whatever of um, opioids for um, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. We got her down to, I think she was around 80 or so something when I sent her back to her PCP. And it took almost two years to get her down because she just, you know, around the holidays, I have family coming over. I'm super stressed. I want to just kind of hold for the holidays and we'll resume in January. And I said, you're fine. That's totally an acceptable approach. Um, 
yeah, tell Stanley how I go. <laughs> it depends on the risk, right? I think that's yeah. what I hear you saying. It's, it's, we want the patient to be obviously very involved and they have to be, <laughs> they're the ones who have to do it. Uh, but I think the risk is what drives the pace. And I recently watched a really interesting TED talk about kind of rapid tapering and, and the harms it can have when we do it way too quickly and how patients really could feel like they're going to die uh, and might go to the street and get medication because it feels pretty terrible. So weighing that risk, um, you know, if so, and I think we forget that too, like after surgery, if you have someone on opioids for a month, uh, you need to taper that. <laughs> you can't just stop that, you know, even though it's acute pain, that's a month's worth of, of exposure to a higher dose of medication. And I do um, have um, quite a few patients that I did have one patient come to me on methadone and I said, okay, you know, if we're going to flip you to something else, we need to get you tapered down. And she was like, just, just do it, do it quickly. And I said, you know, you're going to feel like crap. Like just FYI, you're going to feel like crap. Now, the good thing is opioid withdrawal doesn't kill you like a benzo withdrawal could potentially, right? Um, you just feel like really, really crappy for a while. Um, and she came back and she's like, you know what? I did. <laughs> I felt super, super crappy. I can't tolerate how fast we're going. We need to slow it down. And I said, okay, that's, you know, that's fair. Um, but it, you need to give the patient that education uh, that yes, they're going to feel crappy. They're not going to die, but they're going to feel really, really crappy for a couple days. <laughs> I've heard doctors say that it won't kill you. It'll just feel like you're dying. Yeah. <laughs> Does yeah. all this tapering fast, slow, whatever matter, whether it's a chronic non-cancer pain patient or a cancer patient? It's all about the duration they're on the opioid for. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's If you're on it for a long time, you didn't get there overnight, you're not going to get off it overnight. And if you're on it for just a few days, you can get off of it pretty quickly. So I think it's about um, telling the patient, you are going to have increased pain every time we do a taper. And that's completely, you know, expected. Um, And it's just it, it need, you need to have your body readjust to this new normal um, to then be able to continue um, and, and find other coping mechanisms for, for your pain and, and adjusting other adjuvants and things like that to, to account for that increased pain to be able to get off the opioids. And I think that brings it back kind of to your first question about like what applies in these patients and what doesn't. And I think another thing that applies is kind of what Kelly's saying is setting expectations, whether it's tapering, starting, stopping, doing something else. Uh, what's it, what do we expect to happen when we do this? So the patient's set up for success. And if something goes different than what we expect, they know then it's time to reach out. Say, well, not going how you told me this was going to go. And then that's an opportunity to make an adjustment or do something different, regard, you know, regardless of what element of prescribing we're on in the process. Mm-hmm. Right. So are there any barriers that you see in implementing opioid stewardship and palliative care? And what role might the pharmacist play in all this? Yeah, I mean, I think I said my one of my big barriers before is it's like, well, the patient's dying, so we'll just give them whatever they, they need. And that's not necessarily the right idea all the time. And so I think sometimes it's about personal values that come in the way sometimes of seeing objectively there. Um, so I think that that's one of the barriers is just kind of this the patient is dying and, you know, it's not, it doesn't necessarily apply, but like not being able to see what does and doesn't apply and, and, and taking the full picture into account is really important. Um, so, and then the other big barrier to doing it is, is insurance, I think. And that's probably more 
on being able to get access to medications, like the flip side, um, and making sure patients can access medications. And that's like a barrier that has been very hard to overcome for a lot of people. And then also uh, the stigma, the stigma around opioids that has made it hard to treat pain in palliative care and making patients, you know, maybe possibly misuse medications in an atypical way, like I mentioned, taking them differently than prescribed, taking less, taking them sporadically, stuff like that. Um, that really has created a safety barrier and understanding and how we understand how patients use their, their medications. Yeah, I think the barriers, um, you know, we focus a lot of our stewardship efforts in our healthcare system on getting, um, you know, the other providers to meet the metrics, right? So um, patients need to have a contract yearly, they need to have a UDS at least yearly. Um, and we get a lot of fallouts from providers who aren't, you know, meeting those metrics. And so it's providing the education um, to, the, to the providers about why this is important, why we do this. And then, so then they start getting the UDSs, which is great because that's metric met check. But now it's like, well, how do you, you're not interpreting the UDSs. You're not making any changes if those UDSs come back inappropriate. Um, so then it's providing the education about, you know, why, why we do what we do, right? Why are we even getting UDS if you're, if they're not going to take any action, if it's inappropriate. So, um, that's a lot of our barriers is getting the other um, providers to recognize um, the principles of opioid stewardship and, and why we do what we do. I think resources is another big barrier. Um, like who's gonna do it? You know, who's gonna pay for this kind of thing? You're very busy doing a lot of other things. And so set aside time just to focus on some metrics or some data that, you know, it's not right. a lot of time for. Uh, so I'm lucky to have a dedicated position, but that's not always the case. Um, as far as stewardship goes. And, and, you know, if you're running around in hospice, seeing patients at end of life, you have a lot of other priorities. And so how are you fitting that in as well and where and who? And that's where I think the pharmacist really does fit in actually um, and help to kind of provide some of that higher system level, um, system driven type of change and looking at the data, looking at the metrics, presenting how to educate patients, like giving more of the real um, structural type of, uh, support that's needed for a program. Yeah, we've had, because um, California also came out with a law that said you have to check the prescription drug monitoring program every four months if someone's on a chronic um, opioid. And so we actually implemented that into our EMR where you prescribe something and attestation will actually pop up and say, did you check peers? Yes, no. Um, and so we've sort of, you know, made some system changes based on these laws. Um, but, you know, it is to pharmacists who go through weekly and provide the, the prescribers their sort of quote fallout reports, right, which patients are not meeting these metrics. And it is a lot of workflow changes within the individual clinics, right? We have five rural health clinics where these, you know, a lot of our patients are being treated by primary care for pain management. And so, um, you know, it's the MAs who are checking, you know, chart scrubbing and checking to make sure all these things are being done. And then you know, proposing orders to the to the provider for your drug screens and things like that and getting the contracts ready. And it's it's definitely a process, but it's still, you know, still in, in place. It, we haven't quite gotten there yet. As we wrap up, I'd like to ask one more question. I remember years ago, Dr. Lynn Webster made a comment that if every community pharmacist in the country would refuse to fill a prescription for methadone greater than 10 milligrams a day in an opioid naive patient, they would save so many lives. 
it is difficult in community pharmacy. As you know, my sister is a community pharmacist and she'll call me once in a while. I mean, obviously there are the egregious cases of somebody who presents with, you know, the holy grail of morphine and Ativan and Soma, for example, they come from 200 miles away. It's Friday night and they're paying cash. I mean, a blind man in Peoria could see that one coming. You know what I mean? But what are three tips you would give community pharmacists to say, something ain't right here. I need to take a closer look. Anything come to mind? Well, I think our community pharmacists, um, at least when I prescribe, they're really good about calling us and asking questions for clarification, making sure they have the diagnosis code and all that kind of stuff. And I'm very happy to get on the phone with them. I can fax them progress notes. I can do all, you know, whatever they need for their documentation to make them feel, um, you know, like this is appropriate. You know, obviously still at the end of the day, it comes down to their license and their, their, willingness to do things and I get there's company policies and things like that that are a little bit tough to kind of get around sometimes um but they're very good about calling our office um so I think keeping you know and I know that there's they try a lot to to communicate with the providers and not every provider is as open and willing to discuss as I am (laughs) as we are in our clinic um which is unfortunately probably a barrier for a lot of the community pharmacists but just trying to maintain that open communication um, with the patient and the provider right so don't just like not fill and then not tell the patient why you're not filling say oh i need to check with the prescriber about x y and z and so that they're on the same page and not expecting something and then not getting it mm-hmm. Tanya, yeah, I mean, you I want think, to add to that? yeah i think like um reaching out when something doesn't look right is really important because the prescriber the provider may not know they may not have they might have that glimpse into that patient's life at that time that you have and i know sometimes like kelly said there's pushback and there's it's there's a lot of time that's difficult but um i and it, recently we've, we are doing a little bit of buprenorphine microdosing and i've been doing it for pain as well in some of our patients with sickle cell disease and um when the patient showed up to the pharmacy that well very extremely smart and well-intended pharmacists should have educated the patient about the risk for withdrawal scared the patient and so we had to kind of dig back out um, and say, it's going to be okay. We, like, we know this is how this works. There's a lot of literature on it and like get the patient buy-in again. And so, uh, when something looks funny, kind of reaching out to say, it's really what you intended to do before maybe kind of putting, you know, y- uh, yourself out there and maybe scaring the patient away from it. Cause maybe we do want to, you intend to prescribe hundred MME or 200 MME. It's six you want and what you think is right. So call the provider first, make sure that's right. And then say, Hey, you know, this is so-and-so I talked to your provider. They think this makes sense. And we're going to do it versus, Oh, it's a scares me. Let me call your doctor because that has a different intent, a different outcome potentially. So I think that um, the intentions are good and they should be there. And I want as much, you know, scrutiny as possible but it's as we're on the team scrutinizing together. I think that's really important. And then I think the other important thing is uh, naloxone and naloxone carrying it, distributing it, how we talk about it, remembering that it's not a risky patient, it's a risky drug. Um, so when something does look funny, or if we're not comfortable, talk to the patient about having naloxone in the home um, yeah. and making sure that they're aware of the benefits of that. Great. Any last comments from either of you as we wrap up? I don't think so. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Covered the waterfront. Thank you very, very much. Very interesting uh, conversation. So I'd like to thank. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Mendoza and Dr. Yuritsky, and thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative.
Thank you.